Hello, love bug, and welcome to Chronic Sex, the podcast about how self-love, relationships, sex, and sexuality are affected by chronic illness and disability. Given the subject matter, this podcast is not suitable for those under the age of 18, and unless you have headphones in right now, you probably shouldn't be listening to us at work. My name's Kirsten Schultz, and I'm your host. It's good to have you with us today, wherever you are and whatever you're doing. This is the third Chronic Sex Podcast episode, and I have to say I'm kind of excited because I know what I'm doing a little more now. (laughs) I'm so excited because I feel like I have a better handle on the technology I'm using. I'm usually really good about handy things, whether it's technology or, like, tools. So it's always interesting to me when it takes me a little longer to grasp things. I think it's always a good uh, measure of how well my brain fog and fatigue are affecting my life (laughs) more than anything else. Regardless of how I'm doing, I want to bring you my friend Derek today. Derek is a DJ who acquired HIV at three months due to a blood transfusion. He lives in the South, where, admittedly, there's not enough uh, awareness about HIV and AIDS, even more than in the rest of the United States. He's started a project called End the Stigma, and I will let him talk more about that. So let's welcome Derek on the show today. My story started in um in eighty four. I was born and then three months later my family found out that I had a a heart condition known as transposition of the great arteries, which meant the blood was flowing backwards. I was getting unoxygenated back unoxygenated blood back to my body instead of oxygenated blood. And I was what was known as a blue baby. So I ended up having to have open heart surgery at three months of age. And I was in intensive care for three months and had multiple blood transfusions through the course of surgery and recovery. And I made it out of that and made it home. And now I had a pacemaker. And I'm currently on my fourth pacemaker. I've been battery operated ever since that initial surgery. And everything went pretty good. I was a normal kid, got scratched, bumped, all normal crazy stuff that happens to little boys and no real worry. The only worry for family was that I was smaller than the rest of the kids. I was always the smallest kid in class. And, you know, I never really, it never really caused any problems. I luckily had a good group of friends that we all stayed together all through the years. And so it was a pretty close-knit group, so there was never any real bullying or anything that occurred there. And when I was 15 years old, I went to have my third pacemaker implanted. And when they did the surgery, I didn't come out of anesthesia um, as I normally would. I stopped breathing, and my heart stopped, and I had to be resuscitated through CPR, and that really freaked out family, and 
and I didn't have any memory of it. It didn't freak me out. I just woke back up and saw everybody all stressed out. But I couldn't go back to school because I had this cough that I couldn't get rid of. And so I started going to a local doctor here. And the first thing he said when he met me was, what are your health conditions? And I said, I have a bad heart. And he said, well, what else? And I said, that's it, man. And he said, well, your heart has nothing to do with your size. And the reason he was so concerned was at 15 years of age, I was 55 pounds and four foot tall. Oh, my goodness. So he, he ran me through tests for dwarfism and different conditions he could think of. And nothing ever came back um, positive for him. So he ended up sending me down to the University of Florida to get growth hormone, human growth hormone shot, the shot that um, a lot of NFL players and a couple of baseball players got busted for a couple of years ago mm-hmm. is what I what I started taking. Well, I did that for about nine, ten months, I want to say. And um, it worked. It worked very well. I gained over a foot in height and over 55 pounds in weight. So I, I grew and gained weight very rapidly. And I was being followed by a medical class. My doctor was the head of endocrinology, so she would take my medical records in the classroom. And what they do is they black out any my name and any, you know, personal information. And all they get is, you know, if you have a patient that appears in front of you with these conditions and with this, this, and this, what do you do? Well, one girl in the class noticed that I had had blood transfusions in 1985 and that I had never had an HIV test. And it was just sheer luck that this information came around and they asked me to submit to it. And two weeks later, I went back and I was diagnosed with AIDS. And I was I was diagnosed with AIDS. A lot of people get confused. I was diagnosed that way because the virus had lived. Because I had went 16 years without ever, without any treatment, without any intervention. And so right. the HIV virus progressed that far. Because a lot of people get confused. They're like, well, shouldn't you have been diagnosed with HIV? And, and the best of conditions, yeah, I would have been diagnosed with that probably when I was three or four years old. But I wasn't because of my progression with the virus. I was diagnosed with AIDS. And I had what was known as wasting syndrome. My body was getting ready to shut down. My, and I, I had no clue of it. I thought I was doing great, feeling great. And because of that, I'm actually one of the worst patients for a doctor to ever have because I let things go for so long because I don't know what an actual normal pain scale is. Mm-hmm. I'm very used to I'm used to an incredible amount of pain every day, and I just don't recognize it like 
most people would. I walk into the doctor and say, I'm not feeling well, and I get diagnosed with bronchitis, pneumonia, and all kind of stuff, and they're just sitting there going, how do you not feel bad? Like, I just thought I had a little call. It yeah, is so felt, interesting. It's it's so interesting me. when we're used to like these these more severe conditions and we live with them untreated for so long that it just it it doesn't it doesn't make us numb to other pain, but it, it just increases our pain tolerance to the point where we just don't um we don't notice some of those things as easily. Yeah, and I, I'm really, really bad about it. I, I, My doctor will tell you I'm really good at creating new normals. <laughs> like if something bothers me for a day or two, like I learn to adjust to it, and I let it go for a month or two before he sees me. And then goes, well, what about that? And I'm like, eh, that's, that's not a big deal. And then the, they just shake their head like, no, if something hurts, we can fix it. And I just, it's not that I, I'm afraid of going to the doctor or anything like that. I just have this ability to kind of say, okay, that's what it is. Let's just keep going. I've got other stuff to do. I've got other things to take care of. I don't yeah, like to slow down. Well, it sounds like you are really good at just acceptance in general. Um, and, and how, you know, life will throw you a plot twist and you just adjust to it. And that's, um, that's a really versatile skill to have, I think, when you're dealing with, um, an illness that makes it very easy for you to acquire other illnesses, um, and, and deal with some extreme side effects and, and complications related to illness. Yeah, and it, I mean, it, it really is. I mean, it's a good skill to have, but it's a terrible skill to have. I'm pretty much my own worst enemy. Yeah, I uh, I feel you on that. <laughs> Definitely feel you on that. Um, I, I tend to do the same. Um, I was diagnosed with a, a rare form of juvenile arthritis when I was six, um, after about eight months of being sick, um, and it, I didn't get any treatment for it at the time aside from basically a leave um, until I was a senior in college. And so as a result of, you know, kind of having to deal with all that pain, it, it just became my new normal. And it's it's so interesting because now, at least as far as physical pain is concerned, I, you know, like, I know when I miss a medication dose, (laughs) or if I'm like, I've delayed it because I'm traveling or whatever. Um, And it's it's very easy for my body to pick up on that. And I'm, I'm not necessarily as good at adjusting to that normal as I once was. Um, And it kind of makes me reflect back about like, how did I survive all that time <laughs> without, you know, uh, of being treated for my chronic pain causing illnesses? And like, what was that really even like? Because, you know, pain is so, 
subjective and it's hard um it's hard to recall our pain in the same way as we lived it um which which is an interesting kind of concept to explore i think that's one of the things I think about when I can't sleep at night, like <laughs> the philosophical ramifications of like some of these uh, issues that we deal with as far as illness goes. Um, so what what was it like then after you got your diagnosis of AIDS? Were you able to go back to school? Like I know you grew up in the South and so sometimes there's even increased stigma in a lot of areas related to some of these illnesses and um, especially to AIDS around the time period you were diagnosed. Yeah, I was able, um, after I got into treatment, I was able to go back to school and um, there wasn't, nobody really knew in the community. I mean, the family went to administrators of the school and explained to them my health issues but you know they kept it quiet it wasn't it wasn't like it was back in the early 90s like it wasn't put out for the entire school mm-hmm. it was um but I and very quickly realized that with the meds and everything I didn't have the energy to keep up with school so I ended up mm-hmm. dropping out and ended up get, going and getting the GED. It was just quicker. And because I just couldn't physically do it, it was um, it was a lot of adjusting. It was a lot of meds. I was taking meds um, four times a day. I had 22 pills to take. And so it was a lot of just nonstop moving and going and just a lot of things. And I ended up just having to drop school and and sadly I mean I'm still I hate that I had to but I mean it was was what it was that there was no way to change that in that moment right it's uh fatigue can be so difficult to deal with it's I I honestly like I don't know if I had to choose between like my extreme days of pain and my fatigue, I would 10 times out of 10 choose like extreme physical pain over that fatigue. I do you, when you get fatigued, do you ever get to the point where like your brain is willing to do things and you just want to push and go and do and finish these things, but your body just, can't even fathom (laughs) like how to even get up and put the shoes on to get out and go do those things is that is that a a common occurrence for you with your fatigue yes I mean I constantly that's one of my biggest fears and that I think is probably going to happen with me is that my body's going to start falling apart faster than my mental state and I'm scared to death of that. I mean, that uh, really scares me. Yeah, I feel you. It's it's hard, um, especially if if 
any of our listeners have been through points of their lives where they, you know, are are very proud about maybe their academic accomplishments or things like that, and then to go into the state where you just you you can't physically do those things, your brain is still working, but it's almost you feel trapped in your body in a way that is absolutely terrifying. Um, and, and sometimes that fatigue can even affect, you know, our thought processes and that we're not mentally as aware and capable as we were, you know, the day before. And that can be scary too. Um, it's, it's a very interesting, fatigue is a very interesting, uh, conglomeration of some very scary symptoms that I think as a society we all tend to downplay. Yeah. Um, so I, I was doing a little, uh, you know, Google stalking on you. That's what I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... I saw that you started a campaign called End the Stigma. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? That is actually one of the proudest things that I was ever able to do. And and basically, I, I started that because of the fact that in the Southeast, there is a huge problem with the um, increased rates of HIV. And the biggest problem is that it's not talked about. Nobody talks about it. It's not really seen in the news media anymore. It's not in TV shows. And when I grew up, it was all over. I mean, it Mm -hmm. was everywhere. All that was being talked about. And the rates of HIV plummeted because of that. Because everybody was just, there was such a, presence of it everywhere you turn. Like, you couldn't go to the grocery store without seeing it on a magazine. You couldn't turn the TV on without, you know, hearing about it. And now it's just, if you hear somebody talking about it, it just kind of shocks people. Like, why would you bring that up and blah, blah, blah. And at the same time, it's still affecting people every day. And so it just it bothered me that people aren't comfortable talking about it, that they don't want to have the conversations. And if I did hear somebody saying something about it, it was usually wrong things. It was people worried about if I was in a restaurant and they got the same cup that I had had. You know, the so I wanted to start the in the Sigma campaign to bring up and get all the good information out. To let people know, no, all these old myths are not something you need to worry about. You don't need to worry about if you see me in a restaurant. You can't get the virus because you used the same utensils or you had the same plate or we went to the same bathroom. Those are just things that are, that's bad information that's out there. So that's what the End the Stigma campaign was started for. I think it's a it's a great it's a great way to bring up the stigmas associated with AIDS 
Um, when I was in high school, there was um, a, a local group that focused a lot on eliminating the stigma um, associated with HIV and AIDS. And um, they had people come into the local schools and talk about um, some of these these issues about you're not going to, you know, get AIDS if you kiss me. Like, there's <laughs> there's not... Um, there's not as much talked about like you were saying in our society about these things anymore. And, and the majority of the things that are talked about are talked about out of fear um, and misinformation and lack of education. Um, I think a lot of it has to do too with like our lack of comprehensive sex education in general too. Um, You know, since HIV and AIDS can be transmitted sexually, these things aren't talked about other than in kind of a scaremongering way <laughs> that then doesn't really yeah. help anybody. You know, you you don't get the facts. You don't, um, the, the only information you retain in those settings is, is kind of that fear and, and that negative emotion and not, you know, well, these are, these are people who are dealing with, their illness on top of, you know, all this stigma that we perpetrate and and continue to let go on in our society. And it's just, ugh, it makes me mad. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm really glad that you are focusing on this. I think it's important when those of us who have illnesses can use use our illnesses as a platform for doing good, um, for educating people about our illnesses and about, um, you know, what is or isn't true about them. And, uh, I honestly think that there's no illness that carries more stigma, um, than AIDS, which is just, I don't know. You know, I remember being, I was very little in the early nineties and, and just the, like you were saying, there was so much talked about, and then it just stopped. Um, yeah. And 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 the only things you kind of see now are, oh, well, we think we cured AIDS. And then, you know, six months later, no, we didn't, we didn't cure AIDS. Sorry, guys. Like, the AIDS showed back up in this patient's bloodstream, so that wasn't, you know, the cure. And it's just... It's sad when that's what we see. Or um, even people like Charlie Sheen, who recently talked about his, you know, disease status and and has been very vocal in um, talking about being safe as far as the sexually transmitted part of AIDS goes um, and, and making sure that people are learning some of the correct information instead of of all of the stigma. Um and and I I know that you've gotten to do some really cool things about or or associated with and the stigma. Um like you've been talking at like some local colleges and um doing some public speaking about that. How is that how has that gone? 
It's gone really good. I'm, that's one of the things I look forward to every year is being able to go into the schools and um, and tell the story and see the reactions. And that's the best part is the reactions from everybody. I mean, it's a shock at first when they hear the story, but then their ability to come up and ask me questions and they're so interested and like, oh, yeah, I remember this. And, you know, I'm, I'm really concerned about this. Our health class doesn't bring it up. And, you know, just hearing the things that, you know, get me even more concerned. And then I I get on the Board of Education's ass and they don't really like me because they don't know how to handle this topic in the first place because it is it is so controversial. And now, with the way the schools are and the way that everything is in our country, you can't say more than five words without offending somebody, which I think is yeah. ridiculous, especially when it comes to this topic. Like, I'm not there to offend somebody or to upset somebody. I'm there to teach them to protect themselves because this is a preventable disease. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I mean, it's very troubling to me when I get done speaking the things that I hear that you know the the schools themselves the kids in the schools want the education they want the classes they want to learn but the schools just don't offer it and they don't have they don't know how to I don't know if the stuff that I was taught back in the day if that all got thrown in the garbage or what, but I remember workbooks and different things and different groups coming in and speaking on HIV and AIDS issues. And now that's all just fell to the wayside. And especially in the Southeast, there are increased numbers of HIV cases all across the Southeast. And it's just, it's scary. That's really hard. I I know that um, in April I was able to go to a conference with some other kind of healthcare chronic illness bloggers and and activists, and it was amazing. Um, there were some really cool people, kind of from the southeast area as well, um, that were saying the same thing. We're talking about um, how how the lack of conversation about AIDS and HIV has led to so many more infections um, of of these illnesses and that people, you know, aren't, aren't aware of where they could get tested or there's so much stigma around getting tested that you have these people who carry, you know, the illnesses forever and don't realize until they get very sick. Um, and it's just, I don't know, it's so hard to see um, that that kind of thing happening still. I mean, this is 2016. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're supposed yeah. to be talking about these issues and, you know, helping each other. And that's not happening. And it's just, um, it's really hard to see. Is it, is it... As as you talk about it in the schools, 
Do you ever get blowback from the students? I know you were talking about that a lot of them really appreciate you coming in and really want to learn these issues, but do you ever get, um, you know, any negative comments back from them that are really related to the stigma kind of being continued in the area? No, I haven't. Um, and I think it's mostly because one of the big events that I go and speak at, they bring in panels from the AIDS quilt that used to go to Washington, D.C. And um, it doesn't go to D.C. anymore because it's too big. It's, it's actually too big to go fit on the White House lawn anymore. And it was broken up across the country. And, and um, it may be across the world um, to use at different events. And so they bring in panels of that. And so after we get done, after I get done speaking, I escort the class to where those panels are. And these are kids now that weren't even born when this panel was first being brought out and used. And when they see that and they really understand that, you know, this was somebody's life all these panels were somebody that died from the AIDS virus. It really floors them. And it, um, then they come over to me and they just, you know, just are frozen. Because, it, I mean, it is very shocking when you first see that. It's a very emotional experience to realize that how deadly this virus really is if left untreated. And if it's not taken care of, and the quilt goes back to the early days when there wasn't good treatment, when there wasn't anything else. If you got diagnosed, you were just, you know, told to prepare your things and, you know, get your get your stuff in order, and you were close to the end. And that's what these panels represent are those dark, dark days of when there just wasn't many options. And now there's so many options. And it's really upsetting that the media and the you just don't see anything when it comes to HIV. And mm-hmm. it could really save people's lives. It could. It um, So this is all kind of reminding me vaguely of a South Park episode and I don't know if you've seen the one I'm talking about but um Cartman winds up he he needs to get his tonsils taken out and he's very afraid and his mother's like oh it's fine everybody gets their tonsils out you're you're going to be okay and it turns out that he needed a blood transfusion and did wind up um contracting HIV during the process. Um, And, you know, South Park is South Park. So it's very, (laughs) it's very um, crude because it's South Park. But, but I always, uh, you know, try to look at the bigger societal commentary in the episode. And so um, Cartman tries to throw a benefit to raise money for his health care because, you know, in researching, he saw how often that happened in the past and, um, you know, tries to get Elton John to come. Jimmy Buffett's the only one that shows up. Um, 
and it's just like him and his mom and one other classmate. And then there's a conversation about how, you know, nobody cares about AIDS anymore. It's all about cancer. And it's just a very interesting episode from that kind of societal perspective, because I think that is kind of what has happened. Um, And then, you know, at the end, they they go to Magic Johnson's house and they're like, well, you, you know, you're doing really well. You must be doing something. And it turns out he sleeps on all his money every night. There's this big pile of money, like Scrooge McDuck or something. And and they find out that if you just uh, concentrate money enough, you know, and, and inject it on a cellular level, it kills HIV and AIDS. And there's there's also a point at the end of the episode where kind of the stereotypical white colonization type person in Africa drives into this village that you can tell is is very poor and um because of the stereotypically high AIDS rates you're you're kind of left to assume that this village has very high HIV and AIDS rates in Africa and you know a person drives up in their Range Rover and says, hey, we found the cure for HIV and AIDS. You just have to inject yourself with lots of money and drives away. And it's just, it's just from a societal examination standpoint, it's just so interesting, I think. Um, Because, you know, one, you've got this conversation centering around how nobody talks about HIV and AIDS and, and nobody cares about it the same way that we used to. And then you've got, you know, the flip side of of kind of exposing some of the the racial inequalities that often happen when we do talk about HIV and AIDS because we often think of it as being an epidemic in Africa and not being, you know, a common occurrence here right now. Um, and it's just, if you haven't seen it, it's it's a very interesting episode again to watch from the societal standpoint because it is South Park. <laughs> yeah, but, I have to check that out. Yeah, it's really good. Um, is there are there other kinds of um, media, movies, shows, or anything that you found that? Um, kind of talk about HIV and AIDS in, in in a way that helps to lessen the stigma? Like, are there things that, you know, people could watch or listen to that would help them kind of understand a little better the issues that um, AIDS patients like yourself and others kind of face on a daily basis? Well, I believe the um, the Ryan White story is um, currently on Netflix, I think, and that's a really good one to watch. He was um, he contracted the virus in the early nineties. I don't know if you're familiar with that name, Mm-mm. but him he he contracted it from a blood transfusion. He was a hemophiliac, but he um, was banned from school. I mean, actually went through all the I mean, worst of the stigma you could imagine. 
he was banned from school. There were protests out in front of his house. And he went through hell. And it's a very good movie to watch. But then again, that's a, a movie from the early 90s. Like There's yeah. no movie telling stories that anybody, you know, 23 or younger is going to really want to latch on to and watch because they're just not going to connect to it. Yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing more current with the exception of maybe um, in 2003, HBO had a miniseries called Angels in America that talked about, um, you know, AIDS, which, again, it's still looking backwards, it's still looking, you know, in the 1980s as AIDS really became an epidemic. Um Gosh, I wish there were more things about what's happening now that were really easy to find for people because it's just, I don't know, it's just so upsetting to watch all the stigma that, you know, you and I grew up seeing and it's still here and it's yeah. it's gotten worse, you know, it's backtracked. So, I, you know, as I was Google stalking you, um, (laughs) I saw that in 2014 you were named one of the 10 sexiest straight men living with uh, HIV AIDS. What what was that like, that whole situation? That was was pretty crazy. (laughs) That was... um, um, blog that was wanting to do that because she realized that there wasn't really any support for heterosexual men that were doing any advocacy. So she went out and started looking and um, I got named on that and I was very shocked that I got named on that because I never felt that way, never thought I would end up on a list like that. <laughs> but I'm very honored that she put me on that. And it is it's funny that, that she found that. You're one of the first people that have found that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that has brought that to me. <laughs> that's funny. It, you know, anything that says sexy in it, I have to look at, obviously. So, <laughs> 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 you know, kind of speaking of that, um, has it been difficult in kind of the the dating and relationship side of things, you know, knowing that there is still so much stigma out there about AIDS. Um, has that impacted kind of your your dating relationship status negatively? Yes, I am. Um, I just kind of gave up on the fact that dating, I tried it a couple times. And every time my health would be what would end it. And Mm -hmm. if it wasn't due to the fact that the girl I was dating, and usually it wasn't the girl that had the problem. It was her friends and her family Mm -hmm. that would break us apart. That would, you know, just rack on the fact, like, what about his health? And what about this? And aren't you concerned about that? And I... 
I just got tired of it. It was I got tired of defending myself, defending my health, and defending my ability to protect somebody I cared about from the virus. And what I ended up, what I tell people now is I look at myself as a loaded gun. But I'm a loaded gun with, that knows everything about the gun. I know how to protect everybody around me. I know how to, you know, everything in a situation. I've spent hundreds of hours in doctor's office learning everything about this virus. And so it's one thing to be in a situation where, yeah, something could happen. But I know what I am and I know how to protect her. And then she went off and got in another relationship. And my first question was, has the guy had an HIV test? Mm-hmm. And that floored her. Because she said, oh, I don't know. And I said, well, you've been with me and, you know, you know everything and you know all the risks and you know how to protect yourself and protect and make sure this, you know, it doesn't transmit to you. I said, but that's the situation you put yourself in. And HIV is not the worst sexually transmitted disease you could get. I mean, people Mm -hmm. should always be proactive in protecting themselves and learning everything about their health. And so that really floored her, and she's gone back, and she really chewed her friends out and make sure now that she's one of my greatest allies, and and she goes out and makes sure everybody, you know, have you got tested, or do you know this, and do you know that? And she stays on top of getting herself tested every year. And, you know, even though, though the relationship failed, it led to something I can still be, you know, happy about and proud about. Mm-hmm. And now that girl's married and has a family and happy and healthy and, you know, but I I just kind of gave up on my own. I know I can't have a successful relationship with somebody here in the Southeast. I just don't see it happening. That's That's got to be really rough. And, and I think too that that outside pressure um that's just got to be really emotionally very difficult to deal with it is but it isn't it kind of keeps me away from setting myself up for failure mm-hmm. <laughs> it's terrible <laughs> but you know just kind of you know what you can do and what you can't do Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's true for anybody with a chronic medical condition. Yeah, it's um, and and that outside pressure too is is, is something that's very common. Um, there there are a lot of people that, um, you know, even though they've been married to someone for twenty years, their mother-in-law will still ask, you know her son, like, well, what are you going to do when her body stops working and you have to take care of her all the time or questions like that. And it's just, it's so ableist and it's so infantilizing. Like we don't, we, we don't need somebody to take care of us. That's not 
for those of us that are in relationships, that's not why we're in relationships, generally speaking. It's it's just sad to see outside people having such an effect like that on relationships. And I I wish that wasn't the case where you are right now. Because, I mean, you are one of the top ten sexiest, uh, you know, HIV AIDS activist guys. So, I'm just saying... Um, I I was noticing too that you do some uh, DJ work yes that is my escape from all all the other craziness I go to somewhere even crazier (laughs) (laughs) it's it can really be helpful it's man I uh, I like to listen to dance music when I'm in the shower because that's kind of my escape sometimes uh and and I'm in there a lot I've been dyeing my hair a lot of different colors lately so I've been spending a lot more time in the shower in the last couple months than I may usually do um and it's just it's so interesting like dance music or music with with a danceable beat and and some of these cool, you know, electronic effects can have such an amazing effect on our bodies and an amazing effect on, like, our attitudes and outlooks on things, um, you know, can also have amazing effects in the fact that you're trying to dance, you know, in the shower and you may end up injuring yourself, but... <laughs> Also, you know, not very graceful. So, um, that's, I think that's really cool that you, um, you do DJing. Is there, are, are there specific places that you regularly DJ at? Yeah, I am. Every Saturday night, I am at a very large club on St. Simon's Island and called Ziggy Mahoney. And it holds, um, I'm going to say, about 400, 500 people. So it's a big club. And um, I've been doing that for about three and a half years now. Wow. That is and that's, um, so cool. Yeah, that's a, that's a really fun. I'll send you some videos and stuff from inside the club. But it's, um, it's a great escape. That was the one thing that I was very very happy that I'm able to do. It was a dumb idea that I got after I got diagnosed and I felt like everything had been taken away from me. And I started trying to pick up the pieces of my mind mentally. And um, that was just one of the things I was like, I always wanted to do that. I should try to see what, what if I could do it or not. And I wanted to do it because I thought, you know, it would be kind of a calm, chill job that would get me out of the house. And the past couple of years, because of the sizes of the clubs I've been DJing at and the energy of the crowd, it's one of the most physically demanding for me with trying to keep a crowd hyped up and keep them going. And But it's also the most rewarding. I've always mm-hmm. said I wish I could tell my crowd how much they mean to me and how much energy 
they give back to me and the love and the, you know, just the, the ability to have something to go do that gets me out of my own mind for a little while mm-hmm. is so meaningful to me. I need that. I need that every week to be able to, to just escape. And that's what it is. When I turn that music up and the lights get going and fog machines going and strobes and just watching everybody have fun and going crazy, that's what I live for. That's so cool that it's, you know, I haven't been super the clubbing type person, but for my 21st birthday, we went to... um, kind of the the most popular um lgbt plus friendly bar in the milwaukee area and it was just like you were saying it was just a release and it's so cool that you you help provide this release for other people while at the same time you're getting that release back from them in in a different way but it's just it's it's a that mutual um admiration and respect that a lot of people I think wish they had in their jobs um <laughs> and it's just it's so cool to see that that is something that helps you um yeah i'm I'm a big believer in how like music can be healing in general. So that's that's always kind of at the back of my mind, but um, man, but there is nothing like going to a club and listening to this music with people and just losing yourself in that moment. Um, it is so freeing and so I don't know. I wish there was a better word to describe it, but but freeing is really, I guess the one there's got to be like some german word or something that like <laughs> actually means <laughs> like flugelweiter yes <laughs> so what is um what is kind of your hope for the future for the work that you're doing or you know in your personal life what what kind of impact would you, you know, let's let's say go big, you know, think of your biggest dream as impossible or implausible as it may seem. Like what what would be your biggest dream to accomplish with all this work that you're doing? Um, I really want to be able to travel the country and eventually around the world sharing the story. Um currently right now trying to figure out how to write a book. (laughs) I know that sounds crazy, but I'm really bad about sitting down and trying to focus and writing about myself just isn't fun. No. (laughs) I just don't want to write about that. And if somebody wants me to write something, just give me a topic, but don't put my name anywhere near it. And I can write (laughs) you a great story. But if you ask me to write about myself, I'm just going to freeze. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm trying to find uh, ghostwriters and whatever to try to help me do that right now. But I would like to see the In the Stigma campaign on a bigger 
platform, national to international, and you know wherever it takes me, I'm I'm kind of open to it to go wherever and speak wherever I'm needed, and because I, I mean I'd love it. I I just I'd love doing it. And when I go out and I tell the story, I tell a bunch of jokes with it. And it, I always tell everybody at the beginning, you know, my goal is to end with everybody sitting there laughing with tears in their eyes. Because it's not a story that, you know, people are used to hearing and it's a very emotional story. But it's also a story that happened around doctors and in hospitals. And there's no modesty in those situations. You end up in a lot of very uncomfortable. I've woken up next to a nurse that I thought was gorgeous. And I was laying there completely naked. Oh, no. Because I was kind of medicated from surgery, I'm sitting there hitting on her. (laughs) And she was very cool about it and just politely reached over and hit a button on my IV machine that knocked me back out. (laughs) and came in a few hours later and reintroduced herself and we had a good laugh about it and we ended up going to lunch the next day downstairs in the little hospital cafeteria (laughs) but I mean there's there's all kind of crazy funny stories that you know have happened inside of the main terrible story and that's yeah, what I always tell people to try to realize with their lives is, you know, don't don't look at it as one main like ah this was terrible. Look at all those little moments where you laughed inside of it too, and hold on to those. Don't hold on to the pain. <laughs> exactly. I think it's, um, you know, I think it's especially important when we get to points where we're talking about very vulnerable things. Um, I I was just in Philadelphia talking to a bunch of college-age kids who have juvenile arthritis, too, about sex. And, you know, those conversations can be super awkward, especially when you don't know who the hell this person is with blue hair talking to you. And just... You have to impart that humor into it. I think, you know, one, we learn better with that humor, but two, it's, it is the way that we can handle kind of all of the ick that we go through, right? Um, it's, there's, there's this quote from Doctor Who where he says something about, in, in all the bad things, there's a, there's some good things, and, and in all the good things, there's some bad things, and they don't necessarily outweigh each other, but they're both still there. And I think that that's just a really good point for us. Like, you know, you and I have both had, like, kind of not the most awesome lives as far as some things go, right? But it's... um we've had those moments where we find those things that give us that release, that make us happy, that, you know, help other people at the same time, which altruism, one, is sexy, um, and two, helps us on an emotional level. Um, And it's just, I don't know. I, I like 
your idea of focusing on these funny stories on, you know, the, the awkward naked boners and. One that I always tell when I go to speak, a girl I was dating, me and her worked together and, um, we got off work one night and there was a 24 hour Walgreens right down the road on the way home and she told me she goes we need to stop you know we don't have any condoms at the house and i need to get some get some things too so all right no problem and we had been together about a month at this point so it was still pretty new well we walk in and it's about 3 30 in the morning and there's one little old lady working at the front and she goes and runs down to get her stuff and just leaves me standing here Oh, no. And so I walk in and I'm looking around for the aisle I need. And I come around to the where the condoms are. And to my horror, they are locked up in a little lockbox. Oh, no. And it has a little push for assistance. <laughs> so I press the button and it comes out across an incredibly loud speaker at this point in the night because we're the only ones in the store that assistance to aisle three. And I hear my girlfriend laughing to the point that I know she's barely able to stand up on the other side of the store. And she's laughing loud. And this lady comes down that aisle to help me. And she unlocks it and I quickly grab what I need and I go to the front and I pay. I see my girlfriend running down, going, no, 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 wait on me. I said, no, you you can't be a part of this now. You have already laughed at me. Regardless of what this lady thinks, I am leaving, and you are stuck in the store. And the poor old lady's just standing there looking like, are you really really going to leave her here? I said, yeah, you can keep her. And I just proceeded to walk out of the store because I was so embarrassed. And you have to just hang on to all the stupid crazy. And she went to work the next day and told everybody. Oh, no. And so I ended up coming to work. And I had the, they had covered the DJ booth in boxes of condoms. <laughs> just as a way to be like, so they, I mean, there's friends everywhere, you know. They're, not everybody's an enemy and not everybody's going to hate on you because of situations and it's just you know you gotta be able just to laugh I have to laugh at myself every day at dumb stuff I do because a medical diagnosis doesn't take away how goofy we are and you know the just the, the crazy little things that happen to everybody every day and that's what you have to hold on to exactly it's I don't know it's, it's those little things that make life worth fighting for even though sometimes it doesn't always feel like it like it's you know i i have guinea pigs so like when i wake up and come out and they both realize i'm awake <laughs> they just start like squeaking like like those things are silly and funny and endearing and it's um you know but they're the main people i interact with every day so <laughs> <laughs> just using them as an example, but you know, like those those endearing things that are little things, and that if we were to think about the grand scheme of like 
what does life mean and what is the point of living and then what are we supposed to do with our time here? Like those aren't necessarily things that are going to pop up, but they, they're the things that make it uh, easier to endure all the crap. <laughs> like, yeah. And you, you have to have those moments. You do. Exactly. And like my boss cracks up at me all the time because now where I work on the, on St. Simon's that I was telling you about, I have a big stage. I'm not in a DJ booth. I'm I'm on the corner of a stage, kind of by myself. And we get we're known as the Bachelorette headquarters. Oh, yeah. Every weekend I get between like five to nine Bachelorette parties that come in. Well, the one weekend over the summer, we had eight in the bar at one time, and I got dumb, and I got them all out on the dance floor, and I had these, did you ever see the skit at um, Justin Timberlake on Saturday Night Live where he would always dress up like a, um, there's one like shine jug and when he was dressed yeah. up like a um, taco and he would come up and start playing music and dancing in front of another little vendor. Yeah, those are so funny. I had, oh, the, okay. I had the gloves that looked like the like Mickey Mouse looking gloves that he wears in that skit. <laughs> and I got all these bachelorettes out on the dance floor and there was, probably, there was close to 60 girls dancing around well I jumped over the stage and jumped out in the middle with him and I had a buddy of mine up on stage with a camera and I said just take a picture so I've got everything set up here it's just going to keep playing don't worry with the the music it's good just keep playing music and he sat there taking pictures well I didn't know that he sent those to my boss well I woke up (laughs) the next morning and on our Facebook page there's like 20 pictures of me in the middle of all these bachelors. <laughs> and he, he's texting me going, I love it. He said, you got it, man. He said, you're doing it right. He said, I've gotten all these phone calls about everybody saying they're going to be back. And they had such a great time and everything. And he, he just can't believe it. He said, he said, when I first met you and everybody told me about your story and I knew you DJed, he said, I thought I was going to get, you know, a DJ. He said, I didn't know I was going to get somebody that could connect with customers on the level that you can. He said, you just know how to do this job better than anybody I've ever met. <laughs> and part of that is because all the times I've had to lay in a hospital bed, I used to go get psychology books and physiology books and all these things way before I ever wanted to become a DJ. I know so much more about the psychology of what's happening on the Mm -hmm. dance floor and what happened physically to somebody's body with the music and how to change tempos and make things happen on levels that are above what some other people can do. And so that's always been something that I've always been very interested in. Like you said, music and the the power of music and that it has over your body, it lowers your blood pressure. It <laughs> can increase and decrease your heart rate based on the beat of the music. I mean, it, there's so many things 
physically that are happening when somebody's out partying. Yeah, that's really cool. It's really, really cool. I love that you're so interested in, you know, kind of the science behind it. That is just, like, the coolest slash nerdiest, <laughs> awesomest thing. <laughs> that's my that's my escape. Like, I created D-Rex at a point in my life when I was completely broken apart. And that's my alter ego. <clears throat> I gave my alter ego a job. <laughs> <laughs> that is so awesome. I love it. I love it. And um, it's really funny. Like, people always tell me, like, they can see a different... <clears throat> they see me early on a Saturday, and they see me as compared to when I walk into work at, at night. They said, you stand different, you're... Facial expressions are different. Your mannerisms are different. Like, I completely become <laughs> a different character, mm-hmm. a different persona. That that escape in that way is just, it can be so beneficial. I, I, um, I did high school acting stuff, and it was... Um, you know, I, I didn't have awesome Mickey Mouse hands, but um, <laughs> I, I did get to be a spoon in Beauty and the Beast. So, uh, you know, I feel pretty good about that. Um, and, you know, it's just there's something so freeing in being different than who we are every day and in having, you know, an alter ego that is it's it's not necessarily about, you know, if they're sick or not or anything like that. Like, it's still you, but it's, that's not the focus. And that's not the goal of that alter ego. That alter ego is to provide entertainment and help other people, um, you know, deal with whatever they're going through in their lives. And that is such a valuable service that you are able to provide um and and able to help other people um you know get that escape it's just so cool yeah it's Um, it's very cool i think um the i don't know if you've seen the d-rex angels and warriors stuff online did you see any of that no i didn't yeah, I, I had D-Rex Angels and Warriors. They're a part of the End the Stigma campaign. <clears throat> well, I take the the wristbands with me to work, and then I'll pass them out. And then at the end of the night, I'll go back to the tables, and I'll explain to people, you know, what I gave them and, you know, what it means and, you know, that, you know, go out in the community and wear it proud and let people know that, you partied with the DJ that, you know, deals with a lot of different medical issues and, you know, that people are still people and not to not, you know, hate on them because of a medical diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And since I've been giving the bracelet out to everyone, my crowds have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. 
with people coming out going, yeah, I brought so-and-so, and they want to meet you, and we looked you up online, and oh, we couldn't believe everything that happened, but, you know, we're here, and we support you, and, you know, and, and it's great to know that. And once people know kind of what you're going through, especially after they've connected with you on a different level, which as, you know, being in the club and just having such a great night, they really connect to the story of everything that I'm doing then. So they just can't believe it. Like, we would have never imagined, you know, the DJ that we come in to see week to week deals with all this other stuff mm-hmm. and does all this other stuff. And that you're the one that goes out and talks to colleges when you're not here standing on stage. It's just, it blows people's minds. And I think that's the best way to get through to them and to get people to realize the things that are going on and to get their support. You really do have to kind of shock people nowadays, as sad as that Mm -hmm. is. But that's just the nature of the beast now with the fact that we get so much information and so much happens on a day-to-day basis with everybody. You have to be able to stop them for a good two to three minutes to get them to connect with you. Yeah. That's that's so cool. Um, So I don't want to take up too much of your day, but... I've got three questions that I am kind of asking everybody, and it's like they're they're akin to like if you ever watch Inside the Actors Studio with James Lipton and his fancy beard, and he yeah. you know asks those sure. questions. <laughs> one of them is directly one of what those you, questions. So, what was that? Have you seen the episode with the Family Backcast? Yes, it is so good. I have a family guy problem. Like, I really like it. Yeah, me too. I love that show. And they do joke about HIV and AIDS all the time. They do. And it's. I think it's so interesting because the way they do it, it's, you know that they're doing it to everything. Like, they've made arthritis jokes. They've made lupus jokes. Like, it's. It's it's a equal opportunity offending program, I think. Um oh, yeah. I think that's why I like it so much. <laughs> you know, there might be episodes where I go, Mm, you know, maybe we didn't need to make Meg do whatever she was doing with those hot dogs, but like <laughs> there are others where I like will sit on my couch and clap because it was just so great. Um, I it's just best show. I love it. Um, so what is either your favorite curse word or like if you have a favorite substitute curse word? Um, I like to make some up, so I I use those a lot instead of actual curse words, or I'll use them together. <laughs> My favorite curse word is fuck. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. I like it. I mean, it's it, simple. It, it, it covers a lot of emotions. Yeah, it can be like, fuck yeah, or like, fuck you. Or <laughs> it's, it's perfect. Um, what is 
your favorite thing that you do to practice self-care or or to like pamper yourself or to unwind um, when you're kind of having a rough time? Uh, I sit down and just kind of isolate, watch movies. I'll go back and watch. I watch um, Rocky. I can't remember which one it is, but the I think it's the fifth, fifth or the sixth one. There's one where um, his son has grown and he comes out of retirement and boxes, mm, but he yeah. tells the speech to his son about how hard life hits. And life's, it, it's not about how hard life hits, it's about how hard you hit back and to keep moving forward and to not let life beat you up and to beat you down. And so I usually try to find that clip if I ever start feeling like I'm having a bad day. And it just kind of puts my mind back in the right perspective. I was like, yeah, it's not, it's nothing personal. Like life's not picking on you, just. Just keep going, you know, see what tomorrow holds. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a really good point. Like, generally speaking, life just kind of sucks for everyone. And <laughs> and it just sucks yeah. in different ways. Like, <laughs> um, Exactly. Okay. Now, this one, you can take a minute if you want, because I know sometimes especially when it's like a surprise question, it's a little difficult to answer. But if you had to pick one thing about yourself that was your favorite, whether it's a physical attribute, an emotional thing, you know, a psychological trait, whatever it is that you like the best about yourself, what would that be? Probably my twisted sense of humor. <laughs> That's a good answer. I have a, very, I have a very twisted sense of humor, a very weird way of looking at things. And it's just because of being around hospitals and doctors so much. Yeah. And just, you yeah. have to be able to laugh at, like, really bad situations. You do. I, it's That's how we make it through the day, man. Very, like... Uh, you gotta have it. You gotta have it. Um, I, I know that like when I'm not feeling well, I'll, you know, watch things that make jokes about dead babies or <laughs> binge watch Family Guy and, um, other, you know, robot chicken or other kinds of things that are on Adult Swim that have, you know, slightly more twisted senses of humor. Um, and it, I that's how I usually fall asleep now is watching some of those things because it just um it it brings a calming and uh I don't know. It's not as shocking as uh it might be to other people, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, I do the same thing. It's all about just being able to kind of calm the crazy in your own head by watching something else crazy. Exactly. <laughs> Um, you know, Derek, it was so much fun to talk to you today and I am just in awe of these things that you're doing and um how you are still such a badass even though you kinda got handed like a shit deck of cards. Um 
and I I am just I I say this not like I have any input in in what you've done, but I you know as as a fellow activist type person, like I am proud to um, know that you are working hard and in kind of the southeast of the U.S. on raising awareness of of AIDS and um, trying to end the stigma about that, you know, about AIDS and and HIV and all of the misinformation that's out there and um, trying to help people stay safe as they are um, exploring themselves or each other or or doing whatever you do. So (laughs) um, I I am just... so honored that that you took time today to talk to me and I so appreciate you. Thank you for having me on the on the show. Yeah, no problem. I freaking love Derek. He is so much fun to talk to and just so open about what he does, what his life is like, and the things that bring him joy. And I think that's so important for us. Often we focus on how shitty we feel or what our illnesses or disabilities may take away from us. And the fact that Derek's able to find joy in DJing and bringing other people joy through intense music and laughter and fun is just the greatest. I'm so honored that he was able to pop on the show and talk about his experiences, and hopefully educate everybody a little bit more about HIV and AIDS during his conversation with me. Next week, we're going to hear from Tambra Lane, who is a badass. But she is also a life coach who focuses really heavily on people who have had cancer, currently have cancer, and their partners, which I think is really important just a little bit of information about me. Um, my husband's aunt passed away in April of this year after battling breast cancer off and on for the vast majority of my nine-year relationship with my spouse. And it's really important to me to highlight the issues that are faced by people who live with cancer. It's not talked about very much, and... For a lot of people, it does turn into a chronic illness. There are a lot of side effects that happen with cancer treatment and with the cancer itself that lead to chronic illnesses and disabilities. So it's important for us to highlight that as we talk here, too. Even though I think most people think of cancer as a terminal illness, it really isn't. You have to deal with life afterwards, just like any other illness. It's just you know, that period after diagnosis and then like super intense treatment is just a little more accelerated than it may be for the rest of us. So tune in next week so that you can hear about Tambra and all the wonderful things she's doing. Um, As a note, we're going to take the week of Thanksgiving off, but um, everything else will be running otherwise just about every week here. And I hope that you enjoy it. If you or somebody you know who is over the age of 18 
would like to volunteer to write up um, transcripts for any of the episodes. We'd really appreciate it. Um, I am just me and just doing this kind of by myself, which means I have a lot of free range with things, but (laughs) also means that, you know, things have been delayed because I just don't have the energy or the mental capacity sometimes to be able to write out transcripts, which really sucks. There are some automatic systems I could be using. Some of them cost money, and some of them stop after, you know, a certain file size, and so it doesn't really work for us right now. Hopefully in the future, things will change a little bit, and we'll be able to get more transcripts up so we can be as accessible as possible. So anyway, if if you know that you might want to do that, or someone else you know might want to do that, just uh, shoot me an email at Kirsten, K-I-R-S-T-E-N, at chroniccex.org. Until next time, please take care of yourself. I hope I see you again soon. Thank you.